Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Ian calling gentlemen. Ian calling gentlemen. Come in, gentlemen. This is Ian speaking. Are you there, gentlemen? Ah, gentlemen, we have a problem. Uh, I have had no time to work on an intro for our Robin Williams retrospective uh, due to various incidences I should not bore you with right now. So instead, I'm going to copy-paste a section of text from the Wikipedia page on Robin Williams. However, in honour of Robin Williams, we are going to do an element of improvisation upon it, and we are going to substitute some words for another. So, gentlemen, can we begin by giving me a job? Chartered surveyor. Uh, can you give me an adjective? Um, exuberant. A noun. Or, as in O-A-R, as in the thing you row about with. Plural noun. Cabbages. Uh, adjective. <laughs> Smooth. A noun. Matchbox. Oh, noun. <laughs> Traffic cone. Adverb. Salaciously. Job. Lion tamer. Adjective. Effervescent. Uh, adjectives. Fluidly. This is not coming together as I imagined. Fluidly. It's not. It's not going fluidly. It's almost like you've asked a, a series of random things. But it's just <laughs> I think that's kind of the point. Noun and another noun and another noun after that. Three nouns in a row, please. Conquer. Beanstalk. Garbage Oh my god. Plural noun. Gazelle. Uh, adjective? Irradiated. Okay, adjective? Milky. That's good. Adjective? Vague. Noun. Tin opener. My god. Job. Uh, uh, another job. Dental hygienist. Astronaut. That, uh, that actually works in context. Noun. Jam. Verb. Punched. Uh, noun. Biscuits. Famous person. Matt Damon. <laughs> Adverb Figuratively <laughs> Verb Unscrewed <laughs> Okay, film um, The Maltese Falcon Nice Adjective Vigorously Oh no, that's adverb again Keep getting me adjectives and me adverbs Vigorous, uh, vigorous is up. fine, vigorous is fine Verb Vigorous is fine Oh, um uh, Expunged Yay <laughs> Okay, and and the last lap, noun? Newspaper. Uh, adjective? Incandescent. Uh, and another adjective just to finish off. Robustly, or robust. Okay, I shall begin. We shall see how this abortion of a sentence can flows. <laughs> Although recognised as a chartered surveyor, Williams became known for taking mostly roles of substance and exuberant drama. Williams was considered a boat oar by many cabbages and by the public. His on-stage smooth improvisational matchbox became a traffic cone for a salacious generation of stand-up lion tamers. Many comedians were effervescent on the way he fluidly dealt with highly personal issues into his comedy routines, especially his honesty about conkers and beanstalk addiction, as well as his bloodshed. 
young gazelles felt more irradiated on stage by seeing Williams's milky style. One moment acting as a vague, mischievous ten opener, then as a wise dental hygienist or an astronaut from outer space. As a jam actor, Williams' roles often punched others, both in and out of the biscuit industry. Matt Damon, who figured Williams in the unscrewed hit Maltese Falcon, says watching him work was a vigorous and special expunging. Looking over most of Williams's films, one writer was struck by the newspaper of Williams's roles and how radically incandescent most were, writing that Williams helped us robust up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Uh, okay. You know what? It's about as accurate as most uh, Wikipedia articles. So. <laughs> Citation needed. Yes. So there we have it, sirs. That is that is the That's legacy of Robin Williams, uh, according to. Oh dear, I've actually edited the actual Wikipedia page. Oh, who's going to notice? Oh no, no. no. <laughs> 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 uh, if it hadn't started like that, I'd say the only way that you could possibly uh, start this podcast would be to go. Good morning, 80s kids! But we're already into the podcast. I felt that would be a cliche. I thought everyone would be expecting me to go, Good morning, gentlemen! We have a problem. So, uh, but awesome. it's not 0600, so that means it's not early, so that's fine. But well, we better, um, we better start early, because my goodness, the man was busy. Well, I think it's going to have to be a bit of a greatest hits, this one, because if you did everything... Yeah, you'd, you'd be here for a very long time. For example, and, you know, just to get the ball rolling, I don't suppose any of us have seen the classic 1977 sex comedy, Can I Do It Till I Need Glasses? No. So no. I didn't see it at the time, anyway. <laughs> yes. I remember going to the video store when I was younger, and the comedy section, the spine of it, was, was there in amongst the other comedies. And I remember thinking as a small child, who would possibly get over the embarrassment of taking something like that to the counter and waiting for the person to get <laughs> the videotape and put it in the box and hand it to them and then take it home. It's just like, you know, it's like, it's the kind of thing that you should order from a mail order company in a brown paper yeah. package. Uh, of course, it's not probably. It's probably just some, um, you know, something that wouldn't make us even raise our eyebrows these well, days. I, but I, I think I even in terms of a Robin Williams film it's a bit underwhelming considering he is credited as man with toothache and lawyer <laughs> so it's yes yeah, obviously some kind of sketch film with a sort of a sexy sketch film but of course at this time he was also uh in um mork and mindy yeah which is, i imagine for certain people our age it's when we're first introduced to him i would have thought the funny thing about it is I remember watching Mork and Mindy when it was first aired, but I was very young, so I don't really... I remember there was a, you know, I remember the red suit and the silver triangle and that, Nanu, Nanu, and that was it. It was just this vague recollection of something that had happened to me once. Then Channel 4 started repeating it when I was older, and that's when I actually saw it. But yes, this was where he was first, you know, first in television. One thing that does surprise me is that his first, uh, I don't want to call Can I Do It Till I Need Glasses not a proper movie, but I'm going to. His first proper movie was 1980's Popeye, and it does surprise me that was the very first thing that he did, but it is. Um, uh, the film where he famously didn't improvise. Well, no, they kept him very much on book. And that's why it's, it's not a great film. Oh, there's lots of reasons why it's not a great film. No. 
yeah, if anything, that needed some some injection of something, and uh, hey, you know that. Let's make it a plot point that Popeye doesn't eat spinach until the very end. Yeah, huh? well, this is huh? that, that's probably the biggest weakness. Is it's an, most, sorry, an origin story for Popeye. Yeah, it's yes, it's quite ridiculous, really. Uh, yeah, hugely disappointing. I remember going and seeing it, and obviously quite enjoying the cartoon, and uh, yeah, because kind of going, um, when is things going to happen? <laughs> Um, and you know this is, and as well as which, you've got a Popeye movie, so a, a live ad- a, a action adaptation of a sort of a comedy cartoon about a super sailor who beats up a guy with a big black beard to save his girlfriend Olive Oil, directed by the man who would later go on to direct Mansfield Abbey, Shortcuts, and Pret a Porter. Wow! It's like this guy. It's not Richard Donner. It's not Steven Spielberg. It's not someone who does popcorn movies it's someone whose usual thing is kind of portmanteau yes. epic well, well, movie evident isn't it because clearly someone who did that would have a grasp of how to actually <laughs> shoot that that character and that in the end you've got this kind of quirky kind of i just remember this island full of strange people and although the casting is very good i mean olive oil and Robin Williams are, you know, perfectly fine as playing those roles. They might as well, it might as well just remove all of that and just have this odd thing because, yeah, you know, you kind of just sit there waiting for the second he's going to have, have his spinach. It's like the last five minutes, isn't it? I mean, it's literally like that. It's, you kind of just sit there watching this kind of slightly bemusing thing and then you go, oh, now he's Popeye. It's kind of, yeah. I watched it as a child and my main recollection of at the time was being bored and yeah. uh, I watched it again about, probably about 10 years later and stuck through it to the end and it was like totally not worth the journey I think that's all we need to say yeah, yeah. I think it probably behooves us more seeing as we're not here just to go through the list I was just you know you have to do the beginning that's the beginning I think, I think Popeye's worthy of note yeah more Mindy can I do it till I need glasses of Popeye that's the beginning that's the seed that's where it all starts to happen uh, and then there's several films in between and we may come back to some of them but the, the first time I personally was ever Robin Williams was properly on my radar was uh, 1987's Good Morning Vietnam and, of course, the uh, the associated soundtrack and the improvised yeah. bits in the radio studio. And, you know, everybody loved that movie. Um, and at the same time as the movie was out, in order to sort of cross-promote, Channel 4 was showing A Night at the Met, sort of on constant rotation. So everybody got to learn that particular stand-up performance as well. So um, those that's the point, 1987. I think is so. That where it first... Uh, came I, mean, onto the radio. Radio. I, think, I mean, we're obviously, we're, you know, the, the thing that the, the thing people really like about Ron Williams is that uh, he always adds, he adds something to a film, you know, his own invention. But I think that was the, that was really showing the potential there because I'd imagine ninety percent of that film is ad-libbed by him. Really, or it feels like it anyway. There's so much of that performance entirely based on. I can't imagine any other actor would be able to do it. Quite frankly. Um, so it's a real tour de force when you see that. So, Ian, what's the, when, what do you recall uh, your first encounter with Robin Williams, uh, knowing that it's Robin Williams, you know, being that's Robin Williams? Oh, good grief. That's a tricky one. Because I've never seen Good Morning Vietnam. I researched it for the in preparation for today's show. I saw Popeye, wasn't aware it was Robin Williams. I saw Morecambe Mindy. I would have been the same reruns that, that you saw. 
Yeah. I suppose that would have been that would have been the start of the Robin Williams thing. Uh, so, you... uh, are we saying that by the time you got to Dead Poet Society, you knew it was him? That's oh yeah, well, I'm thinking. I, I was like, oh, it's Robin Williams when Baron Munchausen came out. But it's like at the same time, I, I'm thinking, I, what else could I have seen him in prior to this? I'm well, they're watching my head. Out. Well, at the right, the point when Good Morning Vietnam came out, I think there was actually a thing. Now it seems weird, but at the time. I don't know, it just seemed like a thing that would naturally happen. When Good Morning Vietnam and Night at the Met on Channel 4, Channel 4 also got the rights to show other Robin Williams movies from the past. So that's when they showed Popeye and they showed Moscow on the Hudson and they showed um, uh, The World According to Garp. What which was his Garp, first... Garp I've seen, so, twice I think for yes. some reason. Well, well we, because, probably because it was on Channel 4. It's a bizarre film. <laughs> yes, it is a very strange film. It's adapted from a novel in the days when they used to take... Usually, when they adapt a literary novel these days, it's like about Nazis or something. Uh, in those days, John Irving writes The World According to Garth, and they just make it as a movie, and that's something they don't do anymore. And yes, he played Garth. I mean, The World According to Garth, I would say, is, uh, given the full body of Robin Williams' CV... A very Robin Williamsy movie. Yeah, it, it goes all over the map, and 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 is supposed to engage with sort of uh, a sort of bizarre emotionality. Yeah, so I mean, he doesn't really do much improvisation in that. Maybe a couple of ad libs, but it's. He, I mean, the whole point is that it's supposed to be weird. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's kind of like Porky's meets Forrest Gump without any famous people in it. That's the best way I can describe oh, it. Well, most people in, wasn't she? No, I mean without fa- not not like he didn't meet Kennedy or cause the Vietnam oh, yes. War. Oh Yeah, no, I, I mean, mean yeah, it, well, it's it's got a sort of is anti-feminist. I'm not sure. I think it's pro-feminist, but anti-rad fam, and bizarrely makes everyone unhappy as a result. And then, and then spoilers, everyone, he, he gets he dies at the end, and it's, you just come away going, what's the point of all that then? You know, they used to do this in the early 80s and the late 70s, and they used to take books and go, let's just make a movie of that, people go and see that. Nowadays, people would go, why would anyone go and see that? And they wouldn't even make the movie. Yes. But yes, so they did like a Robin Williams season, and it all centres around 1987. 1987 is, uh, at least in the UK, I don't know, maybe US listeners have a different experience, but in the UK, that moment when somehow... Channel 4 brokered a deal with Robin Williams's people that Channel 4 would be at least in part the Robin Williams channel in the UK suddenly everything was there to such an extent that when we went to see I went to see the adventures of Baron Munchausen rather than go, going as a sensible person would oh yes that's Robin Williams I go it's that Robin Williams and I went for the credit list and of course he didn't take his own name as a credit and so therefore I, I couldn't be certain until much later when everyone went no, of course it's Robin Williams. So, yes, yes that was a bit weird. As the funny man, the early episodes of Mork and Mindy, as a, as a kid, I was just splitting my sides. Fly, be free! Uh, just pissing myself. And, yeah, his stand-up show I must have seen as well. Uh, we're, again, utterly, utterly hysterical. So I knew him as a funny man, certainly. Yes, and I think there is a thing to become true. I don't think people have kind of acknowledged it yet. But it's a very dangerous thing to start a career that is not going to be about 
you know, for example, being uh, Billy Connolly, for example, yes. uh, who's quite happy to be a stand-up comedian and occasionally dips his toe in the waters of being a bit more serious, but not very seriously. If you want your career to be about more than being a stand-up comedian and a funny man, don't start your career by being known as a stand-up comedian and a funny man. Because uh, it's funny, like, I was listening to you say, Justin, that Good Morning Vietnam, he improvised half the movie. I think his radio segments make up maybe 12 minutes of, yeah. a, of an hour and 40 I, I, minutes. In movie. my research for this episode, I went out and watched uh, YouTube videos and uh, I saw all his radio segments. It makes one YouTube video. Yeah, wow. and how long is that? Uh, even including the thing he does on the road, about 15 minutes. Yeah, so oh. there we go. Uh, I understand that, of course, I got the soundtrack. Yeah. And they're all on there. So even though I might have seen the film once or twice, I, I just, you know, for me, it's just that, it's just that. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's the sad thing because, well, for, for, uh, Robin Williams, because I think that he was not, he liked the fact that he got to do the, hey, I'm being wacky and I'm being a radio DJ thing. But there's the whole thing about he falls in love with a girl from Vietnam and, uh, and, you know, and he's not, he's very conflicted about, um, the war and, you know, people get, and he, he's not very militaristic and he's very anti-authority. And there's supposed to be a message in there. And all anyone remembers is the radio segments. And it's like, um, yeah, that's kind of not the point. Yes. Uh, and I think this is something that Robin Williams would, would, would struggle with in his career quite a lot. Certainly, I think that, um, Dead Poet Society, which uh, came in 1989, was big because he was getting people into the cinema, but they all wanted to see him do I'm Wacky Robin Williams. So uh, instead, instead of playing unconventional, unconventional, memorable poetry teacher. Exactly. And then people. I, I mean, I think there's a, another side to that, though, because you can't deny. Well, I mean, this is what I I've got out of all the Robin Williams that I've watched in the last week, and I've watched a lot, yeah. is that I've, I actually feel quite ashamed that it took Robin Williams dying to make me realise that this guy was more than a love dead poet society, but he doesn't do any wacky joking in it. it he's actually a very powerful performer. Yeah. Like, irrespective of being wacky, He's an incredible actor. Yeah, I tell you though, it's never been a doubt in my mind. I mean, to me, uh, he's always been, I've always seen him as someone who can, because he's that versatile, he can go play completely into that crazy zany thing. But he, but then can just as admirably and maybe more so do the very dramatic roles completely straight. And, you know, a lot of my favourite, my favourite films of his are those type of films. And as he got older, you know, he was I'm he was given more interesting roles, as I guess is the case with all kind of actors, to kind of portray those, I think. Um, I, I'm not sure what people perceive, you know, I mean, for me, I was always respective of both both sides of his character like that. Um, but I can understand that for a lot of people, yeah, they may well have only seen him as the kind of clown. And I think, and I think there is one other part that that was possibly uh, a bit tragic about that overall, is that there are certain comedians who can quite adeptly step both sides of that line of being, you know, are you being funny or are you being 
serious. And I'm thinking of someone like Lee Evans here. Lee Evans can either be a clown or he can be desperately serious. As I've seen a couple of his, he's, he's been in a couple of films where he's played very straight and it's easy to accept. And the reason it's easy to accept is because Lee Evans chose parts when he was doing his serious thing that are, are dark and full of menace and really quite horrific thrillers, well, that kind of thing. Whereas Robin Williams wanted to be a serious actor, but he always, I think, wanted, had an agenda to make life, to make people appreciate the beauty of life and emotions and humanity. And he was shackled to the fact that he was working mostly to get the biggest audiences in the Hollywood system where that's all fine as long as we all make a ton of cash and you can't just be... He got kind of pigeonholed he's very as being very sentimental. When I think it was the... What I started to realise looking at some of his films, it's not him that's sentimental. It's the fact that he's surrounded by people to make a project and they can't access that level of emotion that he can. Yeah. And so it becomes sentimental. But, but not it's not his fault. He's not sentimental. The film might be. Yeah, Depot Society, terribly sentimental. Can I just say, look... Um... The, the kid's parents are dicks. Fair enough. Did he have to go shoot himself? It seems a little extreme somehow. I mean, I appreciate oh, I appreciate teenagers are impulsive, but my goodness, that was excessive. Dead Poet Society is another one based off a book, though, isn't it? So these these book adaptations, particularly of literary novels, are always troubled <laughs> because literary novels spend a lot of time examining exactly <laughs> why someone did something that, it, from the outside, you wouldn't necessarily know. Why they done it, and then when you make a film of it, it becomes almost impossible to communicate that motivation to the outside audience. So yeah, I mean this is one of one of the problems. I, I think I mean because I think that then he, he made uh, Cadillac Man. Uh, it, it, that was his next project. That was far more. I'm doing a comedy, but again, it was kind of a dramedy. There was a funny bit at the beginning, and then it got a bit more serious when there was like a hostage situation. Well, uh, kind of a forgotten movie, really. To, to kind of like, uh, you know, what's it, what's the saying? If you can do comedy, drama is easy because comedy's harder. I mean, yes. tra- tragedy is com- is comedy without punchline, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's. I mean, this is one of the things. But then there are some people. I think yes, it is easier for someone to be more serious. I think what many actors find is or comedy actors people who are famous for being comedians um find is that they don't get the material when they're not being funny Uh, hence will ferrell only ever making one movie that wasn't a wacky will ferrell project Um, also it is odd that jack black cannot negotiate that he could do a wacky comedy but in the couple of serious roles he's done never really worked well, I'm just looking at, you know, Robin Williams' CV. He, this is a man who never stopped making films in any year of his life. That's what yeah, I'm no, saying. no, no, I know. Uh, this, this is not a man who is struggling to find a part. And, and this is a man who must, must have been saying no an awful lot and picking his films with great care. So oh, I, he I, did totally pick his films with incredible care. He made things he wanted to make. He wouldn't have made Cadillac Man if it hadn't had that moment of calm seriousness because he he wanted to do all these things and and the things that he did that were proper they really worked that were serious i find were the ones that kind of got ignored 
Yeah, it not not as well known as his serious stuff. I mean, there was a he did an episode of Life Homicide Life on the Streets where I think his wife was killed and he has to console his children. It's played completely straight and is just emotionally horrifying. But of course, you know, watching it, it it's ah, oh, Robin Williams is doing that part. But yeah, what what we remember and what we treasure about him is all you know. Ah, oh, he was a genie from Aladdin. You know, I think that is going to be his lingering ghost, unfortunately. Um, I hope not. Because... I'm, I'm not sure about that. I think if you don't display any real knowledge of cinema, are you just going to take these points that you can vaguely remember? But anyone who actually does care about seeing films is surely going to respect him for his body of work that has that and has all. Well, the I think people stuff. who are into films, fair enough. But I think in popular popular consciousness, I think he will always be a funny man. But, well, sh- but shall, we, shall we press on and continue to explore? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I think that there's a thing where. I, I had to pick and choose because, you know, you can't watch. It, it would almost be physically impossible to live your life and watch all Robin Williams movies in a single week. It just isn't possible. Yeah. So I had to pick and choose. So I didn't w- get round to watching Awakenings, although I could have. Although, although again, really a tragedy, got, tragedy film again, isn't it? I have seen it, but just not recently. But Sue really loves it. Would you I like to say? Would movie. you like to say a few words about Awakenings? I think it's a beautiful film, and I think the two guys play against each other absolutely brilliantly. I think that's the other thing. I think Robin Williams is underrated for how well he plays against other people. Often. Yeah, he brings other actors to the forefront, and he's very good at playing against other people. You know, Robert is absolutely brilliant in it, but so is Robin. You know, and I think people forget that, that they both gel so well together in that film. He was so good at doing that. He was so good at making everybody else comfortable and working well with other people. And it appears in, in Awakenings, but it also appears in things like Good Will Hunting, where he's got inexperienced cast members, and yet he still kind of makes them bring the best to the table. And I think he's just so good at that. He's so good at kind of... There's something in him and in his eyes where yeah. you can kind of see him. Come on, you can give this to me, and he get, and they get it. He, he gets it out of them. I think part of the appeal of him is was that um, you know there is something about his expressions. There's something about it that you can just deeply tell this is a kind of a good person, really. You know, he's not someone. I know he's got this kind of crazy screen presence, but he's not someone that you imagine has got this kind of you know the Hollywood star kind of ego. You know, it's it's funny that you should say that at a point because my next point was going to be certainly by the time he made Awakenings, having made Good Morning Vietnam, and having made Dead Poet Society, and now having made Awakenings, and with his stand-up comedy on the side, he was a big star by 1990. Like he was huge the next projects that he chose to do. Dead Again, which most people don't even remember he was in. Is it Cameo? And The Fisher King, in which he is very much a supporting character. And most stars are like, I'm not taking that part. I mean, later on in life, they start to do, oh, I'll do a little bit of work. But in the height of their career, they go, no, I want to be a star. I don't, I don't want to make a film that's interesting. I want to make a film where I get this many lines or I'm on the screen this but much what time. What I'm trying to say is Awakenings was a film where there was two leading actors. There was, yeah. he was, he was up against a big star. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And yet there seems to be no egotism there. There well, seems we to can, be, it, from either no, of them, yes. they seem to, as says he, there seems to be a comfort level in this film where they just yeah. enjoyed yeah. making what is a beautiful story. A 
sad story, but a beautiful yeah. story. But demonstrably, there's no ego, uh, particularly on the part of Robin Williams, because then he chooses to do two parts. You know, one, because he re- probably really wanted to work with Kenneth Branagh, because that was when Kenneth Branagh's star was in the rise. He said, you know, I'll do anything. I just want to be involved with the project. And again, Terry Gilliam comes along with The Fisher King, and he's like, yeah, I'm I'm up for this. And especially well, you say, you know, a supporting role, but it, what a supporting role. I mean... That character is a sort of force, isn't he, really? Oh, it's a, it's a, yeah. I mean, the point is, if it weren't for Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams, <laughs> The Fisher King would be a terrible movie. Yeah. It is a really... I think and if it weren't for Terry Gilliam, that is one hard movie. If you, you, that, it cannot be underestimated how hard it would be to make that movie because it needs to hit so many notes that... Yeah regular a regular director couldn't have exploited and regular actors a lot of actors could not have got their head around and you know terry gilliam is always uh marveled at the fact that jeff bridges character was likable at all because yeah. as he read he was just a terrible human being but it's because it's jeff bridges you find some sympathy with that awful character who never until right at the end does anything that is sensible or redeeming. or redeeming, yeah. So that's a, a movie that is. It would be very difficult to see anyone else doing that. It's a yeah. it's a one off thing that uh, I watched, and you know, it's it's a hard film to love, but they managed to make you love it. Yeah, that's 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 the way it is. It's it's strong cheese, definitely. And and then of course another star time for another starring role, Hook. Hook, but is it a starring is a starring role as he did not allow his name to be on the um that doesn't often have top billing he he, he was very self-effacing well, about well, the project well he, i mean but you would of course because it's the film called yes, hook. But, it's hook yes but he's peter pan <laughs> you know he, he is the he's the um he's the yeah, but protagonist but yes he's clearly i think we, you know you can tell something about his character that's coming out just really discussing, really. I mean, I think, you know, this is clearly someone who admires a lot of actors and wants to be, wants to improve and wants to be... So someone like Dustin Hoffman, if you're, you know, if you're really into your act, you're going to put this person on somewhat of a pedestal, you know. He's working with incredible talent. And he's, he's you know, you can imagine him thinking, like, who am I to, to be above this guy? I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> You know, I think that's just showing, really, that... It it must be noted that Steven Spielberg has gone on record as saying, that's a film that I watch back, and to a half of me wants to make it again to make it better, and the other half of me is glad that I got away with what I got away with, because I think it's not... He doesn't like it. Steven Spielberg does not like Rock. I I saw it at the time. I have to say, something weird happens when I watch this film, and I got... This kind of crazy sugar rush from watching it. And I think I watched this, I went to see it five times, which is fairly unheard of. And certainly it's not really merited now that I've seen it since that it doesn't really deserve that. But somehow it captured something in me that I needed at the time of the spirit of it. But I, I have since looked back at it and gone, this is somewhat flawed, this film. And it's way too saccharine for even Spielberg. I can see how it, it's, well, the yeah, it's, it's, on that set was noted as being Julia Roberts, so 
you know, you've got Julia Roberts on that set being the biggest ego walking around. So it's no wonder Robin Williams was going hot. Oh, it's, 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 it's Dustin Hoffman, it's Dustin Hoffman, it's Dustin Hoffman. Because he's, you know, Julia you Roberts. You know, I don't think if you're really into acting, you, you're going to put Julia Roberts on a, on a pedestal for... No, but she put herself on the pedestal because she was the biggest name. Yeah, of course. The time. She was the biggest actress. earning actress at the time and she it's was the biggest pedestal. a movie star, isn't it? You know, Julia yeah. Roberts firmly fits that movie star role. Yeah. Well, she Whereas, was the biggest selling actress at the time and then you've got Dustin Hoffman who says it's Dustin Hoffman of course you're going to put Dustin Hoffman on a pedestal if you're Robin Williams you're going to look back and go okay when I was doing more comedy this guy was you know something special you know it's Dustin Hoffman but Dustin Hoffman doesn't have an ego so I can well believe again that they got along quite well so uh moving straight on in 1992 now this is something I've never seen so maybe someone else can fill in for me here his he he did a live action role in oh, Toy, God. which was oh, big. Oh dear! Sue loves toys. Let Sue say what she loves about toys. This is what we're here for. She's childlike and innocent and sweet and absolutely marvelously crazy and stupid and ridiculous and completely bonkers. And, and I kind is, of like how that. How is Robin Williams in it? Bonkers. Okay. Absolutely nuts. I mean, don't watch it for thinking it's going to be a great film and a brilliant performance, but watch it and think, oh, this is going to be nuts with toys battling each other. And I think it's great. I, mean, I love it. It's just me. Well, I remember the reviewer, Barry Norman, at the time going over this film and kind of saying, yes, okay, so the film's message is that toys and innocence are better than war. Uh, what's your point? Which, which I kind of have to go, yeah, yeah I see what you mean. Uh, yeah, not a, not a great uh, moment. I haven't seen it. I can't really comment, but I uh, did get the impression, which is uh, what I kind of wanted to watch it. I just I just ran out of time. It, parts of it I love. I mean, visually, it's got some incredible stuff. Yeah. That kind of makes you go, you've never seen that on screen. It's very inventive yes. in places. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, however, I would say this. I think it's kind of flawed. Let's move on quickly to uh, uh, Aladdin. Which uh, it's obviously one of uh, Robin Williams' best remembered roles. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think it's notable that I mean, obviously, when you when you're animating, you always start recording the voice first, so that when you put when the animators are are creating the characters, the characters somehow take on the mannerisms and you know that the actor they've used. Um, so it, they they kind of do gestures because they film they film the actors as well as recording them. So it's kind of part of the process that makes those characters seem alive when we see the final image. Now someone like Robin Williams is a godsend to an animator, and because of the character is like you know just ad lib and we'll just do your fights. Not only will we just put your inflections of the character, but we will actually then just translate your ad libs on screen. So, of course, the genie character is memorable because of all the kind of craziness that can happen around him. And that is entirely based on Robin Williams. I, I take it that the same cannot be said of Batty Coda in Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. <laughs> no, I have not seen this masterpiece. Really get the, you really are given that kind of role that allows you the complete free reign to warp reality around you to completely give in to your, you know, ad libs. No. So, I mean, for that, that's a kind of a dream character, I imagine, for him really, because it's more Robin Williams than anything else that you'll see, certainly in, just a, a voice actor for that role. He took a lot of persuading to do the role because he was yeah. a bit wary about working with Disney. Yeah. And they kind of burned him on the deal they had with him as well, so he was a bit upset about that for some time. Oh, that's a shame. 
Yeah, yeah, I do I think that, I mean, I think there's a lot of danger in The Genie from Aladdin, in that, given the fact that as we continue, we will see that Robin Williams has a creative and an artistic agenda, which is not sympathetic with that part, uh, as it's one of his best remembered roles, that's possibly not his, it's not a win for him. After that, there is this little period here where we have Aladdin, then we have Mrs. Doubtfire, and then we have Jumanji in a row, all of which very notable. I mean, I would say Aladdin and Mrs. Doubtfire, from a, a Hollywood movie business point of view, this was Robin Williams' golden age. But I think from a Robin Williams perspective... This is possibly... It, notice he slips in there. A film which is, I think, nearly impossible to find these days called Being Human. And I remember this coming out. I remember uh, being told at the time, oh, this is a terrible movie before it came out. This looks as if it will be terrible. It's a terrible movie. Then it went to the box office and it was absolutely... It totally underperformed and was buried as quickly as possible. And these days, I would say that a studio was burying something when right. that, com- that kind of thing happens. In 1994, I don't think anyone was quite that savvy. I think they first thought it was a bad movie. It's impossible to tell because it's really hard to get hold of. Uh, d- just reading Wikipedia entry, it sounds like it would be a hard film to sit through. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I know what the su- summary is, but I think be- this, is this, this is the thing. I think Aladdin, Mrs. Doubtfire, not that he was the kind of guy, I don't think, who was like, I'll do this for the paycheck, but those were like big days at the bank. His daughter was young, he was doing stuff that he's doing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of things that play into that. But being human, I think, was more the kind of thing that he'd, he'd want to do. Whereas Jumanji, Mrs. Doubtfire and Aladdin are all things he, I think he had to find his way into, uh, yeah. which is possibly not, you know, the best thing, best thing for him. Should we talk about Mrs. Doubtfire for a second? Uh, yes, we can do. I'm, I'm, I'm mainly remember being nudged by people and going, you see him on screen? He's going to be the next James Bond. That's the main memories of Mrs. Doubtfire. I think he does a very good performance as as a, as a genial old Scottishish kind of lady. Uh, what do you guys remember about it? It's okay. Well, I hadn't said it's not one of my favourite films ever been made. I have to say, I did have a friend who refused to watch it because he said it was a rip off of Tootsie. Okay, uh, that's a bit of a weird reason. I know. It's like well, you know, oh, men doing drag. It ain't. Exa- it didn't start with Tootsie. I don't know how to put this to you. Yeah, I mean he's entertaining in it but i mean i just think it's kind of um yeah it's not it's not exciting it doesn't excite me cinematically you know well, i didn't thing. actually see it for years after it was made because yeah i had no interest particularly that was it there was i, I just wasn't really interested in that story at all and so i didn't see it uh, okay, weirdly well, i would have thought i'd be more interested in jumanji but i've never seen that either Oh, okay. I Jumanji. That's, that's very entertaining, Jumanji. I, I, I like that. I will just say on Mrs. Doubtfire, the one alteration he did make the script was at the end. Originally, originally I think the, they reconciled at the end when he realizes he's, he, he's that he was so committed to his children, he's prepared to dress as a woman for months on end. They reconciled, and he was like. That's not what I want to do. Parents get divorced and they stay divorced. I think we should play that realistically for the kids at home. Well, wasn't it? Wasn't it uh, also a book in which that that ending that they've got is the original ending to the book? That the whole point of the reason that the person wrote the book was for kids to accept. Sometimes parents get divorced. I think Goggle Eyes, wasn't it? Which is a uh, which that was, was also a British a version. Yeah. Yes. 
of well, no, a British uh, equivalent sort of. I, I don't, I'm not saying anything ripped yes. anything off here. I just say yes. There are stories of the late eighties. Well, it was, it, it was the same author, the same author that the book right. that Goggleyes is based on is also her book. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Mrs. Doubtfire. That's why it got repeated when Mrs. Doubtfire came along. But uh, it has the same theme as well. Your parents got divorced and your mum's got a new boyfriend. That's there. But yes, Jumanji. I did see Jumanji in the cinema. I don't want to say about it other than that, other than that it's a really interesting concept of, of, of this jungle themed insane board game and it was one, one of the early instances of animals done as CGI and they look dated now. They they tell them, at the time they were impressive and they was one of the, you know, they were doing fur I seem to remember. That was the yeah. kind of, they, they were trying to, um, you know, it's a kind of a fun film. I mean, I, will I do I, I think I saw a bit of it recently when it was on TV. It kind of stands up reasonable, I suppose. I mean, the effects will look a bit dated, but it is inventive in the fact that you've got all this kind of craziness coming out of a board game. I'm one of the very few people who's in the Zathura camp. Yeah, I agree, though. Actually, having seen that, that's a better film. Uh, so there we go. Uh, now, Sue, would you like to tell us something about John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt? What? This is Robin Williams' part in uh, Tu Wong Fu. Thanks very much. His uncredited part. <laughs> yes, it was an uncredited part. What does he do? He basically is a guy who gets people ready for shows and introduces shows. And he's only in it for about five minutes. That's all right. That's yeah. fine. I just wanted um, to know what he did. Yeah, he gets re- he gets people ready for shows. He's part of a show. He's like a show director. Oh, okay. oh, it's become Mr. Cameo, hasn't he? Yeah. He has done a lot of that. I mean, uh, yes, you will see him kind of playing these little, I mean, imagine, usually humorous kind of little cameos. You have him yeah. playing Osric in a flashback in Hamlet, 1996. That's the Mel Gibson Hamlet. Right. He was he was the he was Mr. Cameo Doctor for nine months, which is the um, Hugh Grant comedy of my of my partner's having a baby. Isn't it terrible for me? Movie, wasn't it? Yeah, and um, he, I don't know what the secret agent is. No. In 1996, don't know it's what that is. It's secret. Uh, we don't know. Um, and, and there's and there's Jack, which I've never seen. It never the concept of it never appealed to me. Despite um, who was in it, who wrote it, who directed it. Uh, Fran- yeah, Francis Ford Coppola directed it. And uh, I think he might have written a script as well. Yeah, Jack was his next major film, and I think this is another oh point God, where he's... It's a terrible film. It's a terrible film, according to Sue, so there we go. Uh, it's a and shame it's a terrible film, because, you know, Robin Williams puts a good performance in, but it's terrible. I, th- I think this is another one where Robin Williams had an emotional idea about what he wanted to achieve with Jack, and it just fell short. We, they, Hollywood as a whole is not capable of communicating that in that idea. Thankfully... In the same year, we have The Birdcage, yeah. Yeah, which, is, uh, which is another... Fabulous film. I, I think one of the things about this is that it is a notable Robin Williams film that people remember. But I think it's also a notable film that people misremember. Uh, who watched The Birdcage this week, apart from me and Sue? Uh, I didn't see it this week, no. Not this uh, week, no. Okay, so what do you remember about Robin Williams in The Birdcage, gentlemen? He's the natural father of the son of the family. Yeah. Uh, who, who's, and what do you remember about, about his performance? Well, everyone remembers the clip where he's doing, you know, the old catwalk gags. The everyone remembers scene. that bit. Yes. I remember men smear, they, t- they, yes. t- they smear. 
what particularly are you after? I mean, that's he's, very good. That's very good. He, he, he is in many ways the straight uh, one of the of the duo. And du- that, of is the, the, that is the hidden part that people don't remember in yeah. this film. Apart from those two moments where he does something a bit more that people go, "Oh, that's Robin Williams," because that's what they think Robin Williams is. The rest of the film, he is managing Nathan Lane's character yes. and playing the, the straight man, uh, quote unquote. To the other characters who are in it, he is he is sort of like the rock around which the bird cage is is yes. built. He does alarmed reaction acting quite a bit in this film, and it's very good. Um, but Nathan Lane walks in completely head to toe in drag and goes hello, and he's like oh god. And according oh. to the laws of comedies, Gene Hackman does not realise he's talking to a man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean the whole the, the the whole thing of that film is that from a Robin Williams perspective, I think it's misremembered that it's because it is a wacky comedy, yes. yes. But he is not the main thing that is wackily comic about the movie. Oh, and then of course there is Agador Spartacus, Spartacus. <laughs> played by Hank Azaria, uh, yes. who who cannot stand up in shoes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but well, all this craziness is happening. Like, uh, I mean, they're so their performances are so crazy that you, in your mind, it's quite easy to think that Robin Williams will be one of those because you know that would be his normal. It would be a natural place, I suppose. So that's what you're talking about by thinking well, that he's not like that. that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, yeah, but he's yeah. That's the thing. The wackiness of the act, the performances around him starts to transfer in people's minds onto him. But yeah. he really isn't. In fact, I think he realised that he had a very important job to do in the in the quiet moments where Nathan Lane needed to be a, more human, and that made the funny bits even funnier. That he was the character who could bring out that humanity in Nathan Lane's drama queen. And so if he was being mental as well, then it wouldn't have worked. Um, and, and actually, his character's quite stern. If you yes. ever, his, his character's not just a, the straight man. He's actually quite a stern man who's actually quite, why is this happening? You know, he's quite angry a lot of the time and quite almost like passive aggressive with it all the time. Yes, very much so. And uh, I mean, this goes straight away into um, a film. That, that, that This is what I remember about Goodwill Hunting. I remember that Goodwill Hunting came and everybody and everybody won awards and it was a generally loved film. And when it came out on video and DVD, everybody bought a copy and then everybody gave that copy to a charity shop or second hand store. It was a film that people thought that they wanted to own as an important movie and then it turned out that they didn't. And I watched Goodwill Hunting just last night and I still can't get over the fact that uh, Robin Williams' character's name is Sean Maguire. Which means nothing to Americans, but in the UK, Sean Maguire was an actor in EastEnders yeah. who did a pop song, yeah. so that's a bit weird. Yeah, he was also in Grange Hill as well. Yes, yeah, so uh, very strange. But yes, uh, gentlemen, Goodwill Hunting, for your consideration. Watched it a long time ago and was like, yes, this is a very emotional movie. I feel, I feel I'm enriched for having watched it. And then watching it again, that watching again experience and going... A few years later, and, and like, it's odd how Matt Damon expresses his genius, like he remembers not only the chapter and verse of a book, but what page it was and where the paragraph was and things like that. It's like, that seems a little odd. That's not genius. That's just some kind of bizarre autism. 
Yeah, I don't know. Everyone remembers it for the "it's it's not your fault" speech, which is which is generally. I think you said that to anybody, they would eventually burst into tears. Absolution. Well, it worked on Family Guy. Yes. Well, me and they had a conversation about the "it's not your fault" speech before watching it again, didn't we, Leo? Yes. So we had a conversation. Well, what, what, what would you tell us? Tell people. Well, that was. I think the moment a lot of people realised Robin Williams actually is a good actor. No, I think that's the moment you realised. I think it's that. the moment I realised. It's also a lot, a lot of people's other other people realised he was a good actor as well. Well, because think... the genuineness of that that. The, the look and the warmth in his eyes when he brings Matt Damon in close and hugs him and it's almost like the the warmth and the look in his eyes and I think people went okay no I, I, you see I, I went to, okay yes, I'd love to say that that was true but the the next parts of his CV beg to differ on this point um, <laughs> so uh, yeah uh, no definitely it's a fantastic performance yeah. a very subtle very nuanced and uh, the act- again, he brought the other actors up in that. Well, yeah, but the actors as a whole, as an ensemble, yeah. the script is a little bit dodgy because yes. I think one of the big messages here is if you happen to have some kind of superhuman ability, then the world must rally round and 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 take care of you and sort you out and uh, make you uh, realise your potential. If you're just like the rest of us and you've had a hard time, suck it up, get over it. Nobody cares. That's the implied message of that. It's like, yeah, we'll save you because you're a mathematical genius. And I think that's the big problem. Is like, no, I don't think that really says anything to people who have similar problems who don't happen to be mathematical geniuses. In fact, it's quite a disheartening uh, message for people in that position. But hey, the, the actors push you through that and allow you to get through to the other side of the movie and take more away from it, I think. I always preferred the sequel myself. Which is? Good Will Hunting 2 Hunting Season. Ah, uh, yes. Seen it. yes, yes, of course, I remember that joke now. Uh, but yes, then we have uh, Flubber, uh, a big <laughs> part in Deconstructing Harry, Father's Day, which I remember coming out at the time, Patch Adams, which I, I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm not a sound certain about this, but I don't think that got really pushed in an international audience. I think that people generally just found Patch Adams to be not a great movie. I, maybe I'm wrong about that, but... Uh, it, it in no way bears any relation to the real Patch Adams. Well, yes, that, there, there is that thing that he's famous about it as well. We have What Dreams May Come and Bicentennial Man... Uh, so we go into this period where I think he's using his goodwill, apart from Flubber, which is just, maybe he was signed on to do that before he did Goodwill Hunting, but certainly his, his, he, he's using his star power to pull some of these projects through. And I think particularly Patch Adams, What Dreams May Come and Bicentennial Man really communicate that gap between what Robin Williams wanted to communicate to people and the Hollywood film studio system. Sort of humanity. Ability, yes. Mean. He wanted to bring that humanity to the fore using the vehicle of cinema and uh, Hollywood failed him 100% of the time to get something across that wasn't schmaltzy and well, overdone and weird. Bicentennial Man or iRobot, which one do you say is more faithful to Isaac Asimov? Bicentennial Man is certainly more faithful to an Isaac Asimov story to a, a, I, a certain degree. I love Bicentennial Man, I have to say. 
That's one of those films I can watch again and again. And in fact, I watched it this week just because I like watching it. <laughs> Very good. Well, what, what, why do you love it, Justin? Well, it's emotional. It's science fiction, but it's emotional. And I'm all, I'm all for that, really. I like, I like a good kind of love story. And, but it's just the transformation, really. I mean, you see, again, you know, you kind of see, um, even though this is just a science fiction, I say that, uh, with some irony, but it's science fiction film. But um, you see the range of he's just so sympathetic and the central role. You really have to care about this character. OK, they start with a robot effectively, you know, with very little emotions. And by the end, you know, you should be kind of crying because of that journey that that character has been through. Here's here's what stuck a fork in me. Yeah. The first time he goes to the the global U.N., yeah. The establishing shot of the global UN shows press vans landing. Right. And in my head, because they draw attention to it, you're going with it sort of up to a point, and then you get to that point and it shows press vans landing outside the global UN. And then the rest of the film, he's allowed to do what he wants and nobody really interferes. I mean, to a certain degree. Certainly, he doesn't come out of the global UN having been denied the chance to be classified human. And suddenly it's like, uh, you know, Andrew, Andrew, how do you feel about the fact that UN don't believe you're human? Which is exactly what would happen. Yes. And you suddenly realise it's a, that's what makes you realise it's a setup. And that kind of robs it of all its emotional power. Is that they've said, they've told a story convenient to step through these and hand wave away all the implications of the things that happen in the story. And then you can't, I, you can't, I found it impossible to engage with it once I had that moment. Okay. I did find it a bit confusing, that whole aspect of it. Cause surely he doesn't need to get himself classified as a human, he just needs to be classified as a sentient being. And his mortality or immortality is neither here nor there. He's sent into and has rights, or he doesn't. There is that. I mean, there are a lot of... This is the thing. It's like a science fiction movie that will follow its ideas instead of extrapolating and taking every, you know, the most logical path. It extrapolates a bit in a particular direction that it wants to go in. But then it, le you know, you could, it, it doesn't care that it's leaving people going, but hang on for a minute. It goes, no, shush, just follow it. And if you can, great. But if you can't, it kind of leaves you by the wayside. And that, I think, is, is a, a bit of a problem. But yes, it's, it's far more an Isaac Asimov adaptation of his idea of robotics than iRobot was. So call it an upside. Now I'm going to guess that nobody except me and Sue has seen Jacob the Liar from 1999. No. no. Mm. Yes. This is a film uh, that cost, I think, somewhere in the region of $47 million to make that took, at the American box office, it never got an international release, $6 million. Ooh! Um, and he executive produced this movie, and I watched it, and I watched it unknowing of the context that came out of it, and so did Sue. Let's let Sue go first. What did you think of Jacob the Liar? It's alright. It's an alright film. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a movie they may, it would be very difficult to make today on the grounds that it's about, um, a Jew who lives in the Polish ghetto during the, in 1944. And he gets caught out, well, he doesn't. 
uh, a, a Nazi with a faulty watch believes that he is out after curfew when in fact he's not and sends him to, for punishment to the commandant. And the commandant has a working clock in his office and so uh, says this is nonsense, get out. But while he's waiting for the commandant to come and tell him to go away, he hears on the radio some news about Russian troop movements, um, which is strictly verboten for... Uh, the Jews to know anything about how the war effort is going. Uh, radios are illegal and so on and so forth. And the next day, he stops someone from doing something that would be suicidal while on work de- detail by telling them, you do this and you get killed. And five minutes later, the Russians come storming in. And he says, how do you know that? And then it becomes a thing that he has a radio and he starts... And he tries to deny he has a radio, but people do that thing that they do. Of course, a man who had a radio in this dangerous situation would do anything to convince us he didn't have a radio. So tell us what your radio is saying. And he gives up and goes with it. And and it spreads hope throughout the ghetto. And eventually the Nazis hear about it and stuff happens. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 a, it's just a story. It's like a drama. It's it's kind of a in the sense of that it's a televisual sort of idea these days. They would put it on HBO, they wouldn't put it at the cinema. That being said, it's a perfectly decent movie. All the critical consensus, which gives it um, like a whopping 6% on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever, uh, because real people haven't really seen it, they all come to the conclusion it's not as good as Life is Beautiful and therefore must be thrown in the bin. That is why this, I'm, I'm absolutely, you check all the critical responses, just, well, I watched Life is Beautiful a few weeks before this, and that was much better than this, so this is rubbish. So, a film that wasn't taken on its own merits, it was like compared to another film about a Yeah, I'm looking at now, we've got Roger, Roger Egbert going, I prefer Life is Beautiful. <laughs> and a lot of, a lot of people going that, and it's like, yeah, but you can't, what about this film? How is this film? And they were, oh, it's just not Life is Beautiful. Uh, I can imagine this was a great blow to, to Robin Williams because he'd executive produced it. And I think, I mean, he does a truly brilliant job. And it's also, in my mind, although it is slightly schmaltzy, it's not really that schmaltzy. I mean, it's quite realistic and straightforward. And the schmaltz is, is, is paid off with... Uh, a reverse kind of bleakness. It goes both ways, you know. So yeah, I think that must have been ghetto in in Poland yeah. in the war. Yeah, you no, but the point is, it doesn't yeah. try and avoid that. Yeah. And yeah, I, I just I was disgusted that that is how people treated it that movie. It deserves to be treated a bit better than it has been. Yes, definitely. It's a much better movie than most people would give it credit for. Uh, and, and predictably, he kind of went underground for a bit, for about three years then. He did a voiceover of a character in Artificial Intelligence. And the next time he appeared, uh, another film I watched last night, Insomnia, which is seen as his breakout kind of... This is the one where people said Robin Williams could do something else other than be wacky Robin Williams, which is, as we've already discovered, immensely unfair. Um, but... People don't care about unfairness. Insomnia is where they said that he was capable of doing more. Finally, in 2002, it just took that, you know, 15 years to get some kind of recognition. Ironically, for me, 
not one of his best performances or movies. And I don't think he works as well off Al Pacino as he does off a lot of other actors. Anyone else swaying in on Insomnia? You know, this is, I never got to see Insomnia. Yeah, I saw it recently actually. I saw it a couple of weeks ago. And, um, uh, yeah, it's not, it's definitely not my, my favourite of his performances, certainly. I mean, it's very understated. Uh, I don't know, yeah, there's not really much, I mean, it's got Al Pacino in it, but I mean, they don't really re- integrate, do they, as characters? For most of the part, they're not even on the screen together, so. If you actually, I mean, if you listen to the words of the script and look at the story without it being a film, I can see that someone could read that script and go, God, this script really pops because there's a lot of moral relativity and it is, it does come across. I think when you're sitting and reading it by yourself and it's happening in your head, it is a possibility it could be better than it actually translates to the screen. I mean, I think that's the issue. I think it's too dry even for Al Pacino. I think it's far too dry. It's like, I can't describe it, but it's like playing an, an, a thriller video. It's a bit like a Stephen King thriller, but without any of the good Stephen King thrills in it. Well, I think that Christopher Nolan, uh, this being his uh, breakout Hollywood movie after Memento, uh, wanted to... What, what, what finally put the final nail in the coffin for me? is that Insomnia is to Columbo what The Dark Knight is to Batman. All Insomnia is, is a kind of gritty, realistic Columbo episode. It has all the Columbo marks, and Al Pacino does a fine turn as the as Columbo, even though he's not, but he really is. You know, Christopher Nolan's trying to strip all the melodrama out of this melodrama, and he nearly succeeds, but not quite. And then that just makes it, as Sue said, dry. Um, and of course, the fact that Insomnia, everyone made such a big deal about that. And they also made a big deal about One Hour Photo, which I don't think really shows off Robin Williams' dark side either particularly well. Anyone? One Hour well, Photo? Actually, I have to confess something at this point. We have about 20, oh, 20 plus Robin Williams films left to go. Haven't seen any of them. He's you haven't now out seen of any my... of them. Okay, fair enough. Well, we will. Right. So you haven't seen One Hour Photo. No. Have you seen One Hour Photo, Justin? Yes, I did. And what did you right. feel about it showing the dark side of Robin Williams? Um, no, I don't. Yeah, it could have been darker. I think I would say. Yeah, I just felt it wasn't really. I think that's what it is. Although people raved about, wow, how dark he is, and going with insomnia, I suppose the two together make this kind of bold statement about the darkness of Robin Williams and how he can perform this great dramatic stuff. Death to Smoochie, on the other hand, completely ignored and showcases the full depravity of um, Robin Williams in a tour de force performance that really, like, I, you know, there was a period back then when I got very bored of Robin Williams. And the minute I saw Death to Smoochie, which wasn't until, like, 2008 or something, I was like, wow, this is incredible. And yet this is one of the most heavily ignored movies ever. Yeah, I've seen it. It's good. You've made me see it. And, yeah, I was gobsmacked at how dark he is in that. So, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. And you've seen it, Justin, because I've made you watch it. I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So, yeah, so 2002 was the year where he really made a mark, maybe for the wrong reasons with most people, but he really did turn in that 
uh, thing in Death to Smoochie. Now, there's a film in 2004 which I couldn't get hold of, but I'm sure I saw it at the time in 2004, mistaking it for one-hour photo, called The Final Cut, uh, which is a sci-fi about editing memories. Yeah, I, I saw that. I, as I was looking at the list, I'm like, I don't remember this film. No, I, I'd forgotten it entirely, but I think I rented it from a DVD store and watched it right. and quite enjoyed it. But thought I thought it was about him being a Photoshop clerk who was a stalker <laughs> or something, because this is another one of his low-key, dark performances. It really worked. He did the voice uh, voiceover in Robots uh, in the meanwhile. Uh, the Aristocrats is a documentary about an incredibly dirty joke. In which... Actually, I have seen that. That is yeah, one film I have seen. Yes, uh, there's not much to say about that because he's just talking about that and he's he's one of the contributors to the... and he does a yeah. telling of the aristocrat. After that, his most notable roles uh, are Night at the Museum, he plays Theodore Roosevelt in those movies. Happy yeah. Feet, he gets some money for being the voice of Ramon Loveless in, in that and I presume Happy Feet 2, yes, that's what he did. I remember RV coming out, people panning that. Uh, I remember the night listener coming out and not watching it. But really, the rest of his CV, all the way down, seems to tell a story of either doing stuff... I mean, he's he's kind of given up to a certain extent. RV, licensed to wed, um, old dogs, Happy Feet 2, Night at the Museum. All of these projects are speaking, and the big wedding, are all projects that speak of, hey, it's wacky Robin Williams being rap, wacky Robin Williams. And then in between you've got, like, The Night Listener, August Rush, Shrink, uh, World's Greatest Dad. That's an ironic title, by the way. Uh, if I tell you the plot summary of that movie, you'll be extremely depressed, so I won't. Yeah, there's, there's the you know, all of these other films are like, he's kind of flip-flopping between giving the people what they want and doing what he wants, which is something completely different. And and that's, I suppose that's where he, he kind of ends up. I mean, it, it, yeah, when I get to the end of it, I'm like, God, when I look back over some of those greatest hits, and I'm talking about things like Goodwill Hunting, Jacob the Liar, things like that, even things like Bicentennial Man, where it didn't quite come off, I can, I can almost see in the CV this thing of, frustration that he's trying to communicate a message of love and embracing humanity and he makes a lot of films about life and death and the, the places that those he's, he's got a big mind for taking in mm. these enormous philosophical concepts and he's trying to transmit something to try and give humanity Probably. that kind of message and time and time again sometimes people kick him for it sometimes people don't get it sometimes it doesn't just doesn't work and the only time that everybody seems to applaud is when he's being a dancing monkey this must have been immensely frustrating for him uh, final thoughts ian on on the career of robin williams you know final thoughts about robin williams 2001 artificial intelligence where he played a, a, a voice actor part and that's the last robin williams film i've seen chronologically uh, not including the aristocrats in 2005 that's that's incredibly sad that essentially i've taken the last 10 years off from robin williams which is kind of sad but look over the list of films he has and clearly he's now just famous for being robin williams really isn't he which is, which is doubly sad everything i've heard about the guy he says he was very genuine very sincere very giving 
when an earthquake hit in New Zealand a few years ago, he donated very heavily towards that for rebuilding. Uh, so many stories of his acts of charity and donations all coming out now he's dead. He seems like he was a really decent human being. It's, it's very sad and it's ended in a very sad way. It's just so, it bums you out so much about the turn of events that went through this guy's life. Cause I think he was a very deep thinker and a very sincere guy. Justin? Actually doing this has made me feel very sad. I, I mean, obviously I've always, I've always, uh, referred to Robin Williams, um, and enjoyed everything, all the, all the different types of things he's done. But, kind of discussing it in this way i just kind of feel like that maybe the 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 world wasn't wasn't the place for him he was like too beautiful a soul you know he seemed like a genuine decent kind of incredible spirit and it's just very sad that that the world he could he could not see his part in that uh it just it's yeah it's very emotional so I think often with somebody who's a depressive soul or has problems in that way, you try and communicate to the world through emotion and through the best way you can. And sometimes people don't understand the emotion you're expressing or sometimes people don't always connect with what you're expressing. And I think it's a shame that people didn't connect with him until after he was gone because he expressed a lot. Um, And by people... Uh, she means me. Uh, no, I mean, you know, no, this I mean, is no, but I mean, I'm saying I don't know if that's true at this time because we're still not that far away from the event of his passing. But certainly I feel the bad part for me that, ma- that makes me sad and slightly ashamed is that it's taken this event to make me take a look back. And this is the happy part. This is the good part. This is the part that we should all focus on. We've lost. Robin Williams the man but all the things that he tried to do are still there to be seen you go back and you watch Goodwill Hunting and that performance and I think that's a way that he approached it it's my performance I want it to be a whole thing and indeed it is like each one of those go and watch Bicentennial Man again and the first time I watched it I totally wrote it off as just fluff and then I watched it again I'm like no I can see the struggle and I, you know, that's the bit I'm ashamed for. That was there to be seen when he was still alive. And I didn't see it. And I think that's what we, we need to take away is, you know, yeah, okay, so we've lost one person that maybe we should have appreciated. The world obviously appreciated quite a lot. <laughs> but sometimes for the wrong reasons and sometimes for the wrong things. And I think what we all need to take away from this is we need to look around at people celebrities non-celebrities people that we know everybody and say do we appreciate what they're really trying to communicate and that's what we need to learn and from from the whole experience yeah. and here i think it's very important for people to understand people's emotions and people's especially people who are walking around wounded because everybody is to to understand how they communicate and to kind of talk about these things a bit more yeah i mean i think that's why i think if we could take anything away it's listen a bit harder and not just with your ears but with everything just be a bit more connected because and that's essentially what he was trying to say so at least somebody's taken it away be a bit more connected with everything in the world just a tiny bit and maybe we won't miss these things in future and i think that's uh 
that's where it is. So if if someone wants, well, to come uh, and I'm I'm going to go off and run on a beach and cry. And, yeah, uh, tell people to go to our Facebook page. If people, can, yes, if people want to go to our Facebook page and uh, make any comments at all, I'm not even going to make a joke about it this week. If they do want to do that, where should they go to do that thing? Ian? One place they could go would be our Facebook page, which you can find on forward slash uh, Facebook forward slash Revenge of the Eighties Kids, and that's Eighties as a number, said Sirius. Uh, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But podcasts are what it's all about, and for those who want to point your web browser towards Eighties Kids, and that's Eighties as in letters, so E I G H T I E S Kids dot Podomatic dot com. Please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download to your PC for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is only where our most recent podcast can be found. For the legacy of our disconnected Skype calls, you must go to... Uh, you must go to leostableford.com where there is a full legacy, there's articles, there's all that good stuff. And before it cuts out again, maybe Justin can tell us where we can see some of his artwork. Um, yeah, you can see some stuff. Yes, examples of artwork uh, at my Deviant Art page, Justin Wyatt, and the name that, that name. Uh, so there we go. Uh, a somber, but I feel we should not be entirely somber. For it is a great body of work, and I've really enjoyed watching those movies again. And that is the yep. thing that we think we should all take away, is that if you sit down to watch a Robin Williams movie, chances are you'll get a little bit more out of it than you think you will. So you probably should. And people indeed probably have been judged on the popular on Netflix <laughs> stream on Netflix at the moment. Yes, that is a good thing. Yes, it, is a good thing. Um, uh, next week, we should be a little bit happier, for we are, of course, taking on uh, part one of our great odyssey through the film's of the 90s with our top five so until then assuming the skype works <laughs> yes so until then i think we should all say nanu 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 Come in, Orson. Mark calling Orson. Come in, Orson. Oh, Nanu. <laughs> Mark calling Orson. Come in, you Cineraminus. Just get on with your report, Mark. Oh, yes, sir. This week, sir, I learned what it's like to be famous on Earth. That's good. Well, sir, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. You see, most Earthlings try very hard to be recognized for what they do, but when they become stars, sir, they realize they're recognized wherever they go. You mean they lose their privacy? Well, so sometimes they can even lose their clothes. You see, being a star, sir, is a 24-hour job, and you can't leave your face at the office. Isn't fame its own reward? Oh, yes, sir, it is. But when you're a celebrity, everybody wants a piece of you, sir. Unless you can say no, there'll be no pieces left for yourself. I thought all stars were rich, live in mansions, and drive big eggs. I know, sir, that's the common misconception. But you see, to get that, you have to pay a very heavy price. You have responsibilities, anxieties, and... Well, to be honest, sir, some of them can't take it. I'm not buying it, Mort. Why, sir? It sounds to me like they have it made. Well, most of them do, sir, but some are victims of their own fame. Very special and talented people. People like Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Lenny Bruce, Freddie Prince, and John Lennon. <laughs>